Hello, welcome to episode 11 of the Cognitive Gamer Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Blessing. I've already done a couple of podcasts related to memory, but it occurs to me now that I should probably give a general overview of memory and how it relates to games. Indeed, there will be several more episodes in which we talk about memory. Having a bit of a roadmap to talk about as we go along seems like a good idea. As you've noted, we couldn't do much of anything without a memory, playing games included. Imagine trying to play a game, even a simple one like Uno, if you couldn't remember the rules, or if you couldn't remember what each of the cards do in Dominion, or you couldn't remember what buttons to press as you play Super Mario Odyssey on your Switch. Using our different types of memories allow us to play all the games we like to play. As you probably already knew, or at least gathered if you've listened to the previous episodes, we have more than one type of memory. Depending upon which researcher you talk to, you may get a slightly different list of memory types. What I would like to do in this podcast is to give you a sense of those different types, giving you a relatively complete picture of the different types of memory that are out there. We'll concentrate on where there are consensus between researchers, but I'll also point out some of the differences as we go along as well. To begin, there are three main types of memory. We've already mentioned two of them on previous podcasts, a shorter-term memory and a longer-term memory. The shorter-term memory, which some researchers call short-term memory and some others call working memory, holds a limited number of items, like four or five maybe, on the order of a few seconds uh, to several minutes. Longer-term memory, on the other hand, can hold essentially a lifetime's worth of memory for as long as we need it. Working memory is what is in our conscious awareness, whereas long-term memory holds items that we can access in order to bring them into our consciousness. There are different types of working memory and long-term memories, and we'll touch on those as we move through. First, though, I'd like to talk a little bit more about a third type of memory that I haven't mentioned specifically yet on the podcast. We need a way to get information from our environment into our conscious awareness, our working memory. There's a type of memory that works as a buffer that allows us to do just that. that. This is called sensory memory, and it operates as a very brief ray station or temporary warehouse for all the information that comes in through our senses. We touched on this a little bit back in Episode 3 when we talked about attention. A lot of information comes in through our senses, but we can only attend to a little bit of it. Conceptually, it's our sensory memory that takes in all this information from our senses, and only a little slice of it ultimately winds up in our working memory. That's the role of attention, selecting what we can take from our sensory memory to end up into our conscious awareness. Okay, so this type of memory is called sensory memory, and in theory, we could have a sensory memory for each of our five senses, seeing, hearing, touch, taste, and smell. In practice, researchers have really only studied the first two in any real detail, seeing and hearing. Our our sensory memory for sight is sometimes called iconic memory. This is the one we know the most about. I think about it a lot when playing video games in particular. Maybe I'm playing the new Call of Duty. I'm concentrating on one part of the screen, but I see something out of the corner of my eye and I switch my attention. It's my sensory memory that allows me to do this and capture what is in that corner of the screen. All the information that comes in visually stays here for a short bit, and unless it's intended to, will fade away extremely quickly, in a fraction of a second. The same holds true for hearing, which uses what is called echoic sensory memory. All of the noise we pick up through our ears lands in echoic memory for maybe a couple of seconds at most, and unless we attend to it, we'll be lost forever. One important thing to note about sensory memory is that there is no meaning associated with the items here. They are just an icon or an echo, and those require attention to process, and it's only when those items end up in our shorter-term memory that we attach meaning to them. 
Put another way, maybe we see Mario on the screen. That comes into our iconic memory. But just like the screen has no understanding of the pixels it's showing that account for Mario, our sensory memory also has no understanding of the image or icon it registers until our attention places that information into our shorter-term store. The information initially lands in our sensory memory, as I've said, and through attentional processes comes into our shorter-term store. Here is where we are consciously aware of things. You look at your starting hand in Dominion, that information lands in iconic memory, and by attending to the features on the cards, you realize, once it's in working memory, you have four coppers in a state, and that is what is stored in working memory. At this point, you don't need to keep looking at them because you have stored that information in your shorter-term store, your working memory. The shorter-term store has been studied extensively, and we'll talk much more about it on future podcasts. We've already talked about chunking in Episode 7, a way that helps us to overcome working memory constraints. But, as we mentioned in that episode, we can only have precious few items in the shorter-term store, probably only like three or four, maybe five, unless we start to chunk items together. So I might be able to chunk all the cards in my current Dominion hand, but probably not the cards in my discard or draw pile late in the game unless I'm a Dominion expert. In a later podcast, I'll talk much more about a particular theory about the shorter-term store, Alan Badley's theory of working memory. This is a very well-developed theory about what happens in the shorter-term store and how information comes in and out of it and the different parts that compose this memory itself. Badley's theory is so influential, that's why many researchers just call this shorter-term memory working memory to begin with. Again, I'll get into some of this theory's particulars in a later podcast, but I'll give you a thumbnail sketch of it now. Under working memory, the shorter-term memory is itself composed of three main parts, a central executive, and then two subordinate systems called the phonological loop and the visual-spatial sketchpad. Later versions of the theory propose more parts, but I'll just concentrate on these three for now. As its name implies, the central executive runs the show, making sure it has the information it needs to properly operate, and then it uses the phonological loop to handle verbal information, and then the visual-spatial sketchpad to do the more visual stuff. This is a dichotomy we have touched on before, as early as the first couple of episodes. We have different stores for visual stuff and for verbal stuff. We obviously see this in terms of how this information first gets processed by our senses, and that differentiation of duty, particularly between visual and verbal, gets kept not only here in working memory, but also, as we've seen, in long-term memory as well. And, as I believe I've also mentioned, if we can use this differentiation to complement our memories, then our ability to remember information increases. In particular, we can generally remember visual stuff much more readily than verbal stuff. So, if it's a list of items that you would like to remember, like maybe which cards you have already drawn into your hand in Dominion, so you know what you're likely to get in your next draw, if you could devise a visual picture to store to complement the verbal names, then you stand a better chance of remembering that information. The information has now come in through our sensory information, and then, if attended to, goes into our working memory, where it's processed in a more meaningful way. If it is processed sufficiently, then it would go into what's referred to as simply long-term memory, where it could stay indefinitely. There's a lot of provisos to that, which we'll get into in a later podcast. Obviously, things do get forgotten from long-term memory, and we don't remember things perfectly. The contents of our long-term memories can change across time in very interesting ways. But again, that's a topic for another podcast. For many of you, your first memory is probably from when you're about three years old. That's just sort of how memory works, where we don't have any recallable memories from the first couple of years of our lives. But from age three on, you have at least some memories. Depending upon your age now, those memories are now decades old. That's long term. 
Long-term memory, then, seems pretty straightforward on the surface. These memories from way back that you are currently not consciously aware of, but you can, perhaps easily, or perhaps with a little bit of effort, recall into your consciousness. These would include things like rules for your favorite game, your ability to navigate through a video game you haven't played in years, or the events of your last game night. However, long-term memory is a bit more complicated than that. Most researchers will agree that there are different types of long-term memories, just like there are different types of working memory. However, there is disagreement as to how exactly to divvy up our long-term memories in terms of not only simply what labels to use, but also, more fundamentally, what the different types of long-term memories are. I'll go through all these issues as we talk about things here. Most researchers agree that there are two main types of long-term memories, what I would call declarative and non-declarative. Declarative memories are called that because you can easily declare them, or in other words, talk about them. If you find it easy to put into words, then it's probably a declarative memory. I can easily name all the games I like to play. I can open the box for Clank and describe what I see. I can tell you the story I've been through so far in Assassin's Creed Origins. Those are all declarative memories. It gets a little complicated after that. Many, if not most, researchers will subdivide declarative memories into two types, episodic and semantic. The issue becomes whether these two types, episodic and semantic, are truly qualitatively different from one another, or if they are really the same type of memory, but just differ in some type of quantity. I'll get a bit into that once I explain what each type is. Episodic memories are memories that you know when and where they took place. That is, they have a time and date information stored with them. Put simply, they are memories of episodes from your life, hence the name episodic. You can probably pretty easily bring to mind the last game that you played, either a board game or a video game. You can picture it in your mind's eye and tell me where you were and what time it happened and probably who you were with. That's an episodic memory. Maybe you've been to a convention recently and you can tell your best friend everything that you did there. Again, that would be an episodic memory. The last Spiel des Jahres winner was King Domino. If you can recall when and where you were when you heard that news, that would be an episodic memory for you as well. A semantic memory does not have that time and date information associated with it. It's essentially just a code hard fact that you picked up someplace, but at this point you have no idea where or when. Some of you might be able to rattle off all the Spiel des Jahres winners for the last decade, but you couldn't necessarily say when or where you were when you heard that information. That's semantic information. You can tell me what the point values are for the tiles in Scrabble, but again, you have no idea when or where you first learned them. Most would say that's also semantic information. We have these two types of declarative information, episodic and semantic. They are both declarative because you can easily talk about them, like the last game night you had or the components to your favorite game. As I said, there is some disagreement as to whether you need to postulate two different types of memories to account for these seeming differences, or can you account for everything with just one category. They do seem different, with episodic memories usually being associated with being able to picture things in your mind's eye, and semantic memories not so much. There are neurological studies that show different parts of the brain are active when you access these two memory types. That does definitely suggest differences. However, most, if not all, semantic memories probably started out as episodic memories. You may not remember learning the point values of Scrabble tiles, but at some point, someone did tell you or you saw them, and right after that happened, you would have had an episodic memory of that event. But that's faded over time and over all the times you might have played Scrabble to where now it's more of a semantic type of memory. 
We've talked about declarative memories, one of the two main types of long-term memories. If you remember, I mysteriously called the second type of long-term memory non-declarative. In other words, researchers haven't necessarily come to agreement as to what best to call the second type, or perhaps even if there is just one type, so we'll call everything that isn't a declarative memory a non-declarative memory. My bias is to just call it all procedural memory. This is your knowledge of how to do things like ride a bicycle, do multiple column addition, and use a trend stick controller. In class, I'll tell students that your declarative knowledge is your what knowledge, your knowledge of what things are, and your procedural knowledge is your how knowledge, knowledge of how to do things. Some researchers will subdivide non-declarative knowledge into not only procedural knowledge, but also include priming and conditioned learning. I won't take the time to disentangle all of those, but they all have this flavor that this is knowledge that you are not fully conscious of. Indeed, non-declarative knowledge usually works best when you don't try to consciously be aware of your actions. Have you ever tried to do an action that you are very familiar doing, like riding a bicycle, while trying to describe it to someone who doesn't know how? One of three things usually happens. One, either it just slows you tremendously down as you translate your procedural knowledge into something more declarative, or two, not only does it slow you down, but you also make mistakes because you can't perform the action as fluently as you'd like, or three, uh, often you're just left saying, well, you just do it like this, and you don't provide any useful commentary as you perform the action as quickly and assuredly as you usually do. To most people, this division of memory makes good sense, the division between declarative and non-declarative memories. There is actually another division that a fair number of researchers also make, and that's between implicit and explicit memories. Explicit memories are those that you can consciously recall, whereas implicit memories are those that you cannot consciously recall. That does sound a lot like the distinction between declarative and non-declarative that I made, but there are subtle differences that a cognitive scientist will argue with you about. Some will argue that you can have implicit and explicit declarative memories along with implicit and explicit non-declarative memories. But that's a distinction I don't think we need to make here. And I've seen some people argue for a third type of long-term memory, conditional memory, containing your knowledge of why as opposed to either what or how. For our purposes moving forward, I'll just stick with talking about declarative long-term memories and procedural long-term memories. That's the distinction that's made in the ACT Theory of Cognition of John Anderson, my mentor, thesis advisor, and a big name in cognitive science. If it works for him, it works for me. You may be curious to hear about one piece of evidence to support this distinction between two different types of memory. One classic example is from a patient who had brain trauma. In the literature, he goes by the initials H.M., but upon his death in 2008, his name was revealed to be Henry Merliason. When he was young, Henry got into a really bad accident involving his bicycle. After the accident, he was prone to suffering seizures. The seizures got so bad that when he was age 27, he underwent a radical surgery. To relieve the seizures, a surgeon removed Henry's hippocampus along with some related parts of the brain. The hippocampus is key in working memory and forming new long-term memories. The surgery relieved Henry of his seizures, but now he had a new problem. He had interrograde amnesia, meaning he could not remember new events that happened to him. His past was still intact, but no new memories could be formed. Psychologists used Henry's misfortune to learn a lot more about how memory works. One key insight was this distinction between declarative and non-declarative memories. I told you that Henry couldn't form new long-term memories, but that's not entirely correct. As the psychologists worked with Henry, they discovered he could learn some new material. One classic example had Henry learn a new game of sorts, mirror tracing. In mirror tracing, you simply trace a figure, like a star, with a pencil while you're looking at it in a mirror. 
it's a little challenging because movement, of course, reverses in the mirror. As you would imagine, like with any skill, people get better at doing the task as they practice it. The psychologists were curious about Henry's ability to learn this game of mirror tracing. They brought him in on the first day and asked if he ever did the task before. He correctly answered that he hadn't, so they told him what to do. As long as Henry's concentration wasn't broken, he could remember what was happening to him. He practiced mirror tracing, and they saw improvement in terms of time and errors across that session. The next day, they brought him in for another round of mirror tracing. When asked if he, ever, if he had ever done the task, he replied that he had not. That declared a memory wasn't able to be formed due to his missing hippocampus. So, they told him how to do the task again, and he commenced to doing it. To their surprise, he showed improvement in doing the task over how he performed the task on the first day. That is, he didn't consciously remember having done the task before. He lacked that declarative what knowledge, but he still had laid down some procedural how memories that allowed him to show improvement at doing the task. This, along with similar evidence from other brain trauma patients, suggests two different types of long-term memory, regardless of how you refer to them. If you are clever, you can also show dissociations between these two memory types with people with intact brains. But that will have to wait for another podcast. Just like some researchers posit that all semantic knowledge starts off as episodic, some researchers, like John Anderson, posit that most procedural knowledge has declarative origins. Again, that makes sense. We acquire most knowledge declaratively by being told or reading it, and then that knowledge becomes proceduralized as we use it. Consider learning how to play a game. You maybe saw a Watch It Played video or had someone explain the game to you live, or maybe you just read the rules. Those are all declarative and, at the time, episodic experiences. But over time, those rules become second nature to you. You proceduralize them. In order to describe the rules to someone else, you need to stop, slow down a bit, and your explanation isn't so much the rules as you've internalized them, but rather you narrating what it is that you are doing. That's at least partly why people find rules explanations hard to do, because you are verbalizing stuff that has already transitioned from this more conscious declarative storage to a more non-conscious procedural storage. I hope you've enjoyed this trip down memory lane, looking at the various types of memory and how they can be divvied up. We'll use this as a roadmap on future episodes of Cognitive Gamer. When you play your next game, be it a video game or a board game, think about the different types of memory that you're using as you play it. The next episode will be our second Cognitive Gamer Cognalysis, where we take a deep dive into one particular game. As always, I welcome any comments or questions you may have, so please email me, steve at cognitivegamer.com, and also visit my website, cognitivegamer.com. Also, you can like me on Facebook, Cognitive Gamer, or follow me on Twitter, at cognitive underscore gamer. If you haven't done so already, I would also appreciate it if you took the time to give this podcast a rating and a few kind remarks on iTunes or wherever you listen to Cognitive Gamer. Like for most dice rolls, higher numbers are better when it comes to reviews, so I appreciate those five-star ones. Until next time, remember to think about what you play and have fun doing it.